Hello and welcome back to Heights Library's podcast, Unpacking 1619, where you can explore the interviews we've collected with scholars from around the country, in which we unpack topics relating to race in America. I'm your host, John Pichet, and I'm thrilled to share these interviews with you here. Wrapping up our five-part series on slavery in America's indigenous people is Professor Andreas Resendez, historian at the University of California, Davis, on his book, The Other Slavery, The Uncovered Story of Indian Enslavement in America. Professor Resendez discusses pre-colonial enslavement among the native people of North America and the Caribbean, and how the Spanish invasion changed native societies, altered slavery, and decimated entire populations. Here's our conversation from July 5th, 2022. My name is Andres Resendez, and I'm a professor at the University of California, Davis, where I've been for 25 years now. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we're here to talk about your book, The Other Slavery, uh, the un- uncovered story of Indian enslavement in America. And could you kind of give us an overview of why you wrote the book and what you uh, discovered in writing? Sure. I mean, this is a book that uh, that stemmed from a previous book about uh, an expedition gone terribly wrong. Uh, 300 Spaniards stranded in Florida in the 1520s, uh, early 1530s. And they became, uh, out of the 300, only four survived, three Spaniards, one African uh, slave. And these four individuals were held as slaves by indigenous groups in what is now the coast of Texas. And in trying to flesh out that story, I got a little deeper into, okay, so what does it mean to be held as slave by Native Americans in this region? And more broadly about the phenomenon of Indian slavery in the early Spanish uh, possessions. Uh, and so that uh, that led me to the next step, which was initially I wanted to write a book about the... Uh, the 16th century activities of the Spanish related to slavery. It was a very self-contained book, but in order to try to put that into context, I did a little bit of additional research about what happened then in the 17th and 18th centuries. And the more I looked, the more I realized that this was an ongoing story. And I couldn't find any any volume or any really standard work that would give me that whole uh, framework or, you know, way of understanding this phenomenon from early contact times all the way to the 19th century. And so that's how I uh, very hesitantly at first uh, came to this idea of writing the other slavery that I just became persuaded that uh, it would be a better service to try to provide a a general framework. Uh, So that's how it, it came about. Well, it's uh, masterfully done, and I, I think uh, one of the first things that I would like to ask about, we'll get to the Spanish and the Mexican in a minute, but can you kind of give us a, a thumbnail of what Native American slavery and captivity was like before the colonizers got here? Of course. So this was surely not a European invention. Uh, it had occurred uh, for 
centuries, if not millennia, in the New World, as uh, everywhere else in the world. I mean, the exception to the rule is freedom, not slavery. Slavery was the, the rule, um, and uh, the American continent was no exception. What is interesting to me is that uh, the, the forms of enslavement that we and captivity that we encounter in the, in the, in the Americas prior to contact are very much embedded in very specific cultural contexts. So, for example, everybody has heard about, uh, for example, Aztec uh, forms of captivity and in order to use as sacrificial victims, for example, or the Maya in the same, the same way. Or people have heard about the Iroquois Confederation uh, waging mourning wars to uh, avenge or replace uh, dead people in the group by capturing somebody else from one of the other groups. Or uh, elite marriages uh, in the uh, in what is now the Pacific Northwest of the United States uh, being uh, formalized with the exchange of uh, captives. Uh, so all of these practices were uh, occurring in in very localized uh, settings and in very specific cultural contexts. And what what changed with the arrival of Europeans is that these. Uh, activities became unmoored from their pre-existing cultural settings and they became expanded and commodified and therefore uh, it is only after contact that we can uh, see these uh, breathtaking captive exchanges going from for example Apaches being shipped all the way to Cuba or people from the Philippines being shipped all the way to what is now the what are now the silver mines of northern Mexico or indigenous peoples from what are what are now what is now southern Chile going all the way to Peru. So this would have been unthinkable in pre-contact times, but became uh, possible after contact because of these commodification and because of this expansion of the networking uh, of the trade of the slave slave networking uh, system. When I was interested to learn, because I think everyone kind of has a basic idea of the Spanish um, coming over you know, we know of Columbus and uh, that kind of thing, but I was surprised to learn some of uh, what Columbus did when he got here as far as uh, instituting slavery. Sure. So, um, so it is um, relatively uh, little known that Columbus actually prior to coming to the, to the Americas visited uh, what is now the coast of Ghana. He lived in Portugal for 10 years before switching over to the Spanish court. And uh, during those 10 years, he learned a lot about navigation with, with Portuguese navigators. And he also visited some of the early Portuguese entrepôts uh, uh, in, uh, in what is now Western Africa, including uh, Sao Jorge da Mina, later known as Elmina, an infamous uh, slaving um, uh, slaving port. Um, and uh, even though uh, Elmina was not what it would be later, uh, it was already very clear, and this must have shaped Columbus quite powerfully, that it was possible to sustain a European outpost in a far off land by trading, in that case, gold, but also by trading human beings. And so this is a model that he very much had in mind as he 
uh, pitched his project, his crazy project, to sail, sail um, westward in order to reach the east, and um, and when he arrived in the in the Caribbean. So not surprisingly, um, you know, he wanted to uh, additional colonization efforts. All of that uh, cost money, of course, and uh, he failed to turn up the porcelains or the silk or the precious spices that he was hoping to get. But he did find very heavily populated islands in the Caribbean. And so one obvious way to sustain further colonization was by proposing to the Spanish kings to ship um, as many women as necessary and many of the men and also touting the, the, the merchandise that he, the merchandise, quote unquote, that he found there saying that they were uh, far uh, more intelligent than the uh, slaves that you can procure in Africa. And he tried to, to send a few samples so that uh, the, the, the kings, um, the, the, the uh, you know, uh, Isabel and Ferdinand, the Catholic monarchs of Spain uh, would make up their minds. Well, and that's one of the, ten the great tensions in this uh, period, isn't it, with the uh, Catholicism of Spain and the slavery that's happening in the colony. And maybe you could talk a little bit more about how complicated that got, how quickly sure. complicated that got. Sure. No, absolutely. Um, and again, uh, this was this came a little bit of a surprise to me because uh, I, I thought I had an, a, an idea of, you know, where the Spanish monarchy stood in regards to all of this, etc. So it came a little bit as a surprise to me when I found that a uh, the, the monarchy was really hesitant or ambivalent about uh, about Indian slavery. So now let's just, we just need to take a step back here to understand, uh, unfortunately, and that is uh, slavery was a well-known institution in Europe and there were slaves coming from different parts of the, of the world into Europe, especially into the Iberian Peninsula and the Italian peninsulas that were the two major importers of slaves at the time. Um, there were, of course, uh, slaves coming from Western Africa. There were slaves coming from the uh, the Canary Islands, the so-called Wanches. There were also slaves coming from the Eastern Mediterranean at the time. Uh, but uh, in all of these slave markets, uh, there had to be officials that needed to make sure that in order for the sales to proceed and be legal, the, uh, the slaves in question that being offered had to be proper slaves, that is slaves that had to had been done, uh, you know, procured properly by just wars, quote unquote, just wars or uh, wars declared properly by kings and queens and not by piracy or ransoming acts uh, conducted by private parties. And so, at least in theory, uh, the role of this official was to interview both the owners of the slaves or the merchants of the slaves, as well as the slaves themselves, to make sure that all of these uh, requirements had been met. And in the case of the uh, Native Americans, uh, very few of these uh, requirements were met. So in other words, uh, one of the requirements, for example, was that the slaves in question had to be at war with the European kingdoms. And in this case, it was exactly the reverse. The European kingdoms were waging war on the Americas and not vice versa, of course. Um, there was also a very clear, given where Europe was at the time, there was a clear association between religion, as you point out, and slavery. In other words, uh, 
individuals who who uh, who were Muslim were uh, more likely to be enslaved and uh, and with the approval of the papacy than uh, quote unquote pagans as Native Americans were regarded. And so again, that's another consider. So all of, I mean, I could go on and on about this, but the, the basic point is that it was not clear at all that Native Americans were quote unquote enslavable in the same way that Western Africans were, or that uh, Circassian from the Eastern Mediterranean were. Um, and there was some hesitancy on the part of the uh, Catholic monarchs to allow for slavery uh, of Native Americans to occur. And there, were, there was clear evidence of Columbus trying to push for uh, in favor of these slavery. So we, we do have these tension very clearly in the documentation. Well, we have further tension when the uh, slavery is abolished, but not really abolished in the in the colonies, because we have at this point a tremendous amount of people silver mining. Correct. Right. Uh, so uh, so again, in spite of in spite of the hesitancy of the uh, Spanish monarchy from allowing Native American enslavement enslavement. Uh, the reality was that colonists were needed in the New World, and labor from the indigenous peoples of the New World was absolutely vital. And so the, the compromise at first, during the first half of the 16th century, was to generally prohibit Indian slavery, except in a few circumstances. So, for example, cannibalism would be a circumstance in which Indian slavery would be allowed because cannibalism was such a terrible sin that it required extraordinary measures to correct that scene, like slavery. Um, uh, so, uh, so, so not surprisingly, Spanish colonists found a lot of cannibalism all over the place. Um, and, uh, and there were some others, uh, for example, uh, ransom Indians, that is indigenous peoples who had already been enslaved by, enslaved by other Indians could be legally purchased by Europeans and could be held as slaves by the Europeans. The, the reasoning there were being that it was better that these slaves would be better off under a you know, a Christian overlord than under a quote-unquote pagan overlord. Um, so, so all of these um, exceptions to the rule uh, led to a massive enslavement in the Caribbean, um, and that in turn led to uh, serious concerns from many Spanish reformers, and that culminated in the passage of the so-called New Laws of 1542 that prohibited Indian slavery under all circumstances. Um, and so, however, by then, all the businesses of the New World, and as you say, silver extraction, but many other businesses as well, uh, depended very crucially on Indian slavery. And so the result was the uh, use of euphemisms uh, in order to get around these prohibition, but, and main, but maintaining Indian slavery in all but name. And so in that uh, mutated form, uh, that is what we, that's why I call it the other slavery. It's not only other in the sense that uh, it is not Africans, but Indians who are, uh, who are the target of these enslavement, but also in the sense that it is a covert form of enslavement that is carried out in practice, even though uh, in, in the law it should not exist. And I think um, that would be a good 
transition to how Native Americans participated in this because they were not um, always, they were sometimes complicit, if not active participants, correct? Absolutely. Yeah, so as, as we said, uh, Indian slavery had occurred before the Europeans. Uh, not surprisingly, some indigenous peoples uh, became partners to or complicit to uh, European forms of enslavement. They acted as guides, they acted as guardsmen, they acted as junior partners. Um, and in the fullness of time, uh, when they acquired European horses and European weapons, some of these indigenous groups actually became specialists in uh, and started taking from Europeans the business away. And so they became the, uh, the you know, very important providers of uh, slaves, indigenous slaves, both to other indigenous groups and to European colonial powers in the region. And that is that, that is something that, uh, that we can see all over the hemisphere from the Carib Indians, for example, in the Caribbean, to Comanches and Utes in what is now the American Southwest. Well, I was very interested in the uh, Comanche and Ute story because that's not something that I uh, knew about prior. And when you think about Comanche and Apache, mostly it's the war against after, you know, American expansionism that those two tend to figure in. But they have a very complicated relationship to each other. They, there's a long history there, of course. Uh, and uh, prior to the arrival of, of, of Americans, there is these very complicated story having to do with enslavement in, in very different ways. So Apaches were probably the most heavily enslaved indigenous groups. And Apache, bear in mind, it's a, it's a grab bag of many different uh, groups. So we are really talking about a, a constellation of different peoples. But I mean, if we can just bear with those labels for the moment, um, they, as a whole, they were some of the most heavily uh, enslaved by the Spanish. Some, some, many of of these uh, uh, of these peoples were inducted into the silver mines of northern Mexico. Some of them were, as we said, uh, shipped as far away as central Mexico and into the Caribbean. Some of them were shipped as far away as eastern Canada, um, as we now know. Uh, with the work of Paul Conrad, for example, um, Apache diaspora. So, uh, uh, um, so, um, so, so really, um, so it is surprising that later on, as the U.S.-Mexico border becomes redrawn, and Apaches end up on the American side for the most part. There were some groups that were on the South side, but for the most part, now they could raid some of these very same silver mines and carry some captives and bring them over to the other side. And uh, Mexican troops were unable to pursue beyond the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, so, uh, so again, turn the tables on their former uh, slavers, uh, as it were. Uh, the, the case of the Comanches is quite different. So these, uh, these were um, 
I mean, the, the records that we have really stem to go go back to the to the 18th century when we find already mounted, well armed Confederation uh, that that is displacing the Apaches. Um, they are taking over some of their territories very clearly, and they are also a power to reckon with uh, in what is now what 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 is now well. So their the Comancheria, their territory was wedged between what is now New Mexico and Texas. And uh, they conducted raids, and they uh, conducted raids for horses, but also for captives. And they went to the New Mexican fairs to trade um, these various goods uh, and sell, and you know, sell in return captives, as well as hides and beef, etc. So, uh, so again, two two very different trajectories, but uh, but a quite an interesting story, as you say, in terms of enslavement and captivity and their experiences prior to the arrival of Americans into the region. Well, another thing I was struck by, and I I wonder why we uh, well that's another question, but I was one of the things I was struck by was the brutality of the slave capture system where the men are killed and the children and women are taken captive. And then there's those terrible stories with the Mormons, which I don't know if you want to get into or not, but the, yeah, I mean, it's just brutal. Right. Why do you? Sure. Well, um, yeah, I mean, these are some of the sources. We don't know um, to what extent. The thing is, uh, when, when trying to document the traffic of Native Americans, uh, it is, uh, because it was a prohibited um, activity, we get a few glimpses here and there, and we have a continuous paperwork that allows us to make some inferences about the overall scope of this phenomenon. But uh, the reality is that we we have only certain glimpses of this phenomenon. And so the glimpse that we get from Utah is uh, it's quite appalling. So by the time Mormons arrived into the region in the 1840s, uh, this region has already been turned into a slaving ground by both uh, Spanish, uh, the Spanish uh, colonists of New Mexico, but uh, primarily, but now increasingly by uh, by youth uh, groups who are trafficking in distantly related peoples to them, the Paiutes, who are inhab- in, inhabiting these, uh, this great basin region in extended families, really. Uh, they don't, uh, Paiutes, uh, because of ecological region- reasons, they don't have horses. They would often eat their horses because uh, keeping horses would have been counterproductive to them because horses fed on some of the same grasses and seeds that they would feed on. So it was much, much better off to kill them, to keep, to kill the horses off and, uh, and eat them. Um, so they were, uh, you know, uh, quote unquote, digger Indians as American, later Americans who came in. And so they were small in number. They didn't have the mobility of the horses. And so they became a seasonal target by mounted Paiutes, I, I mean, by, by mounted Utes who would come, um, you know, uh, when they were at their weakest, probably in the late winter or early spring months, uh, they would arrive with horses. They would intimidate uh, the men into surrendering some of their women or children. They would sometimes exchange those for a few uh, horses. 
And, uh, and they would do this uh, year after year, and then they would take these captives to be sold into the fairs of New Mexico, as we were saying. Uh, and we have, again, uh, baptismal records that show these stream of Paiute, although sometimes they are identified as Ute, but probably misidentified as Ute, uh, into the, uh, the baptismal records of New Mexico. So, uh, so yeah. So all of and the you know the, we we have some uh, clear sources from the from the Mormons about how this trade was done. We know about the names of some uh, Ute merchants of uh, slaves who would come in. They would uh, do the hard sell. They would uh, torture their captives. They would leave them out in the cold at night, and they would. Uh, often when the Mormons were uh, uneasy or unwilling to purchase these captives, they would kill them on the spot and they would promise to come back and they wanted everybody to, to, to purchase uh, the captives, otherwise this would be their fate. And, uh, and again, we have some of the sources from the other side, remarkable sources from the Mormon side saying how uh, Brigham Young, for example, began, began to think about for reasons that we can go on into if you want, but this is complicated. They uh, believe that indigenous peoples were a people of Israel that had migrated to the New World in ancient times and that they, uh, they, however, had become wild and savage during the intervening centuries, but nonetheless, they could be saved. And so by purchasing uh, Lamanites, as they call them, uh, indigenous peoples, they would be able to redeem them and return them to the right path where they had come from, because they were, after all, a people of Israel. Um, and so that's how they began to justify the acquisition of, uh, of Native American children, uh, primarily, and women as well, um, into their midst. Uh, it's, it's fascinating. And, and um... I don't think we need to get into the theology of the Mormons at this point, <laughs> but uh, I would like to kind of shift, um, not kind of staying with the American West and the Euro-Americans, um, and what happened as they moved prior to the Civil War, moved into the West and moved into uh, Indian territory and, and how that model evolved. Sure. So uh, we have another very good case in California. Um, and again, this is something that uh, that existed. So uh, so we kind of left the story of the Spanish, but eventually the Sp which is relevant to what happened in places like New Mexico and Utah and California. So just a, a minute, which is the Spanish crown eventually uh, closed some loopholes and until continued to prohibit Indian slavery until uh, Indian slavery evolved into a kind of an institution that, we, that was later known as peonage, dead peonage. And so basically the idea was that this would be, in theory, a willing transaction in which money was advanced to an indigenous laborer who agreed to work in exchange for that advance. 
and this person would not be able to leave the premises or the ranch or wherever he had been contracted until he liquidated the uh, debt. But the result, the, the reality was that uh, they were unable to, of course, get out of this. And some of these debts actually were passed from, from generation to generation. So, so children were also a part of this. Um, and this is a system, this peonage system existed in um, you know, in what is now northern Mexico, and it also existed in many of these western uh, states. So, so we see that very clearly in California, for example, um, where uh, during the Mexican era, you know, so uh, Mexico became independent from Spain in 1821, um, and during those early decades of the 19th century, we we see many of these features of peonage in California, and we also see the carving of huge ranches uh, by Spanish uh, overlords who basically inducted some of the indigenous people who had been previously held in the missions, the Spanish missions, and they were now uh, inducted into the Spanish uh, ranches as farmhands, uh, some of them willingly, but some of them unwillingly or unable to go anywhere else. And we also see these same um, California ranchers conducting uh, raids for unincorporated Native Americans who had remained outside the mission system and were uh, dragooned either seasonally and then released or permanently uh, into some of these ranches. And again, we have some some evidence of that. And we. Uh, in theory, um, so, so the Mexican government abolished African slavery. This is the, one of the complications of the story. Uh, beginning in 1828 by presidential decree, but later on with the congressional approval in the 1830s. Um, so theoretically, it was impossible to have African slaves legally in California or in New Mexico and in places like that. But this other system of peonage existed, um, and that is what powered uh, these ranches. And some of the American colonists who started flowing into California in the 1830s and 40s and 50s, uh, again, we have evidence that they learned from the Spanish to adapt very quickly. Some of these uh, uh, American settlers came from the southern states, so they expected, or even some of them brought their African slaves, but they quickly realized that the regulatory system was a little different, but that there was a, a solution to this problem. And we even have how-to guides, the colonization guides about how to how to go to California and colonize that, that drew attention to the fact that there was a, a, an enormous population of indigenous peoples who were willing to, uh, to work for practically nothing or just food. Um, and so this was, uh, this was one of the advantages of California. So, so very much we, we have that system in place by the time Americans are beginning to stream into the region. And I think that's important because we're going to fast forward through the Civil War and come to the after war period and how uh, kind of African Americans freed slaves how their civil rights and Native American civil rights didn't always coalesce into the same freedoms. And I'm thinking mostly of the uh, how the amendments worked and the uh, that sort of stuff. Sure. Yeah, I mean, very briefly, um, 
As we know the story, uh, the, uh, the 13th and 14th Amendments um, really were thinking about to, to protect um, uh, the former freed African freed population, but uh, but it was unclear how these amendments applied to Native Americans, and so there was uh, there was a lot of hesitancy about this, and uh, the Supreme Court ultimately uh, opted for a very uh, restrictive use of the 13th and 14th Amendments uh, for these purposes to liberate. Uh, um, to, to liberate uh, uh, non, you know, uh, Native Americans held in uh, in bondage in the Western states, uh, and so that's how these um, these labor system, these anomalous anomalous labor system, actually um, continued uh, through the rest of the 19th century, um, and we find even some cases into the 20th century, uh, amazingly enough. So, so in some ways, um, if we go back to the beginning of the of the of the interview uh, when we thought about the fact that the Spanish crown had uh, prohibited Indian slavery because it was theoretically prohibited and theoretically it didn't happen then it was there was no major civil war or clear legislation that ended this practice uh, once and for all and so it was the in this murky territory that it endured through the rest of the 19th century. And I think that's such an important uh, point of the book, too, because it, it, it really does, you really do kind of uh, trace that kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge kind of aspect of it all, where in legality, you don't have it, but in practice on the ground, it's very much slavery and, and almost the antebellum period um, with the, or the post, after the Civil War, you have the Black Codes, which almost are replicated from these Indian codes, right? Right. I mean, again, we don't really know exactly what the inspiration of the Black Codes are. I mean, there there were some precedent maybe in the Caribbean as well, uh, you know, African slavery in the Caribbean for those. Uh, but it's surely the case that the types of... Um, uh, so basically after... Uh, uh, African slavery was was ended in the southern states, then new codes essentially criminalized a series of activities like vagrancy or uh, or uh, bad language, uh, etc. And uh, surely those types of codes and those types of use of the legal system in order to coerce people into work, into working for uh, private overlords, that's something that Native Americans would find extremely familiar. And so in some ways, uh, what I would say is that African, uh, that slavery ended in the southern states, but the other slavery just got started in, the, uh, in, in, in those states. And in fact, it, it's very interesting that the, uh, the Congress passed the so-called Peonage Act of 1867 uh, in order to end the uh, peonage system that we just described for the Western states. But interestingly enough, uh, many of the cases that you find in the 1890s and 1900s, and even later, uh, early 1900s, um, uh, occur in the South 
rather than in the West, which again suggests this crossover uh, of, uh, of peonage from the West uh, and into the South. Thanks for listening to Unpacking 1619. For more information on Heights Library 1619 Project Discussion Group, or to check out more interviews with scholars, please visit heightslibrary.org. See you next episode, wherever you listen to podcasts.